This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Mali has been under military rule since an August 2020 coup. The government denies working with Russian mercenaries, but human rights groups and journalists have documented several alleged human rights abuses committed by them since reports of their arrival in the country. That's Annie Reisenberg reporting from Bamako, Mali. Details coming up. Also, Russia says it won't test fire a new weapon during naval drills with China and South Africa. Cyclone Freddy is headed for Southern Africa after killing four people in Madagascar. And U.S. First Lady Jill Biden has arrived in Namibia. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Russia says it will not test fire a hypersonic missile during joint naval drills with China and South Africa, contradicting earlier reports in Russia's state media. Kate Bartlett reports from Johannesburg. A senior Russian naval official told a news conference in Richards Bay on South Africa's east coast that the country had no plans to fire the Zircon missile during the 10-day exercise, Reuters reported Wednesday. A frigate that carries the weapon, the Admiral Gorshkov, is in South African waters, one of several Russian ships deployed to exercise Mosey 2. Russian news agency TAS reported earlier this month that the Zircon, which President Vladimir Putin has called unstoppable, could be used in a training launch during the exercise. That drew condemnation from South Africa's main opposition Democratic Alliance, as well as the Ukrainian Association in South Africa. South African officials denied the report. Speaking to reporters Wednesday, Captain Oleg Gladki, who is heading the Russian contingent, said, The hypersonic weapon will not be used in the context of these exercises. There is no hidden meaning in the exercises that we are performing today, according to Reuters. South Africa has been heavily criticized for going ahead with the exercises, which coincide with the first anniversary of the ongoing Ukraine war. But the South African government, which has officially remained neutral on the conflict, has defended its right to hold drills with friends. The ruling African National Congress Party has a long relationship with Moscow, dating back to the days when the Soviet Union supported the ANC's struggle against white minority rule. Kate Bartlett for VOA News, Johannesburg. Cyclone Freddy pummeled Madagascar last night with heavy rains and winds killing four people. The Associated Press says in the western city of Mananjari, 16,660 people were displaced and 5,000 homes damaged. Madagascar's meteorological office measured average winds of 50 kilometers per hour and wind gusts of 70 kilometers per hour. Communities on the country's east coast and southwestern regions are assessing damage. One resident said the cyclone toppled banana and breadfruit trees, which are staples for many communities. Authorities say 64 tons of food relief have been made available. Freddy, now classified as a moderate tropical storm, is projected to leave the island this evening and head towards Mozambique with potentially damaging winds and heavy rainfall in parts of southern Africa. Nigerians are going to the polls on Saturday. 
And then we have Kweku Nuema, professor of international politics. I talked to him. At, he is at the American University in Washington, D.C. And talking to him, he says Nigerians still want democracy. But the question is whether this election can supply the kind of democracy people want, given all the problems that the country is dealing with. I think this is uh, an important, a pivotal point in Nigeria and Africa's history because Nigeria is such an important country and as uh, Nigeria goes, so goes West Africa and Africa in general. Nigeria has come to a crossroads uh, of some sort uh, in this Polka development. Uh, there are good things that have happened in the country. This is the first time, for example, that the PDP-APC duopoly is being seriously challenged since the end of military rule in 1999. It's also the first major elections since the uh, NSAS movement and so it gives us a chance to see if uh, a youth-led movement for change has enduring power and can lead to polka changes uh, that um, young people want. Also, that Nigeria has not had a coup in 30 years. The last coup was 1993 and so uh, that tells us that somehow the polka culture is changing and then you have uh, the latest um, Afro-Barmida survey that came out. Uh, seven in ten Nigerians still want democracy and so the question is whether this election can supply the kind of democracy that people want given all the problems that the country is dealing with. There's youth unemployment, there's a public order deficit, there's complete mismanagement and chaotic public policy. And the question is whether the elections can answer those questions. There are a lot of young people that are looking for change in Nigeria, and they are looking to the polka system to provide that change. I don't know if they're going to get it at this time, uh, but part of what makes change possible is believing in the system and being patient enough to allow the system to produce the change that you want. So I hope that they vote peacefully, and I hope that whoever wins the elections take on the task of uh, turning things around in Nigeria seriously. Uh, can you can you talk uh, a little about the top contenders in the race? Okay, so this is an interesting question. Um, so we have the usual candidates. Um, I talked about the duopoly between the People's Democratic Party. You have Atiku Abubakar over there, and then you have Bolatinubu from the All Progressive Congress, APC. These are known quantities. The candidate that excites me is Peter Obi. He has a new party, Nigerian Labour Party. Uh, he's an Igbo guy, Christian, 61 years old, a businessman, but he's not completely unknown because he was a very successful governor at an, uh, Anambra between 2006 and I believe 2014. He's the candidate that most young people uh, on social media appear to be drifting towards. So as the campaign is going on, there was a national cash shortage coupled with uh, fuel scarcity. It's It sparked protests in major cities with people attacking bank buildings. What was that all about? That's the chaos and the unseriousness of policymaking in Nigeria. It, it, you know, it brings back memories of that disastrous social media ban. It's, a, it's as if the policymakers don't think through these policies. They don't realize how it impacts everyday people on the ground. And so this is totally an unforced error. You don't do such a major change ahead of the elections. I'm really, really disappointed. And I, I think the government has realized the error of his ways. And um, hopefully they turn the period of, for the 
a change and allow this to, hand, to happen seamlessly. Lastly, Professor, the Independent Election Commission, INEC, this uh, survey group, Afrobarometer, is saying that the uh, trust in INEC has dwindled. Nearly 80% of Nigerians distrust the organization, and that is supposed to be the Independent Election Commission of Nigeria. It troubles me that trust in INEC has gone down, but there are new things that's happening. They have a new electoral law that gives them a little bit more power to do certain things. They have better electoral security technology, and so I hope that INEC can do its job. We haven't had too many disputes over elections in Nigeria, uh, at least not the type that leads to the kind of conflict that we saw in places like Kenya. I hope they can do a, a better job, but it's troubling that uh, trust in INEC has gone down. Whoever wins this election is going to have a tough time running this country, and they're going to need the cooperation of everybody. That was Kweku Nuama, professor of international politics at American University. He talked with me from Washington, D.C. In the latest regarding the Independent Election Commission of Nigeria, INEC, a top official of Nigeria's electoral body says it is ready to conduct national elections. Presidential and National Assembly polls will be held Saturday, and the governorship and state assembly elections will be on March 11th. The official says the commission would begin distribution of sensitive election materials today to the states while non-sensitive materials already have been sent. He says the election materials are kept with Nigeria's central bank. Festus Okoye is INEC's Commissioner for Information and Voter Education. He spoke with reporter Mike Mbonye by phone. In terms of um, uh, the sensitive and non-sensitive materials, we are good to go. Uh, all the non-sensitive materials required for uh, the conduct of the election have all been batched and uh, despite to the, very, to the 774 local government area offices of the Commission. Uh, the, in terms of the sensitive materials, they will begin to move uh, from the central bank as from today being Wednesday day uh, and then some uh, states will um, begin to move tomorrow we have our ballot papers and resources uh, with the central bank and the political parties the representatives of the political parties the media and domestic election observers are going to be with our staff in the central bank for inspection of these materials before they move to new uh, various local government areas Nigeria is currently experiencing shortage of cash and in some areas fuel scarcity too how, how is INEC going to overcome these challenges with the elections just two days at hand you know the conduct of election is a shared responsibility it's a multi-stakeholder venture and based on this the, the commission mobilized and uh, interfaced and partnered with uh, all the critical uh, national institutions and they mobilized all the critical national assets um, that are relevant and um, uh, conducive for the conduct of election. We met with the uh, governor of the central bank relating to the issue of um, uh, some of the services that we need to pay with cash. And he assured us uh, that um, uh, that will be addressed. And as I speak to you, it has, it has been addressed uh, because our resident electoral commissioners have reported uh, that um, 
some of them have uh, the necessary cash required for the payment of the transport allowance of ad hoc staff and also required for the payment of um, drivers that are going to convey our election personnel and election materials uh, to the various locations. Uh, in terms of uh, the issue of the future shortage, we also had a meeting with the group CEO of uh, NMPC Limited, and he assured us that there will be availability of um, that that a few will be available uh, uh, for us. And we they have dedicated some filling stations in different states of the federation and different local governments, as well as floating stations uh, for um, the vehicles we are going to hire. Because for this election, we need at least 138,000 vehicles and trucks. We need at least uh, 4,000 boats and the uh, canoes. And we need at least 88,000 uh, motorcycles. What about the issue of uh, security? at the polling units when i talk of security the security of uh, inex staff security of uh, the voters and everybody that will be at the polling unit on election day has inex taken care of these two we had our last meeting before the presidential national assembly elections yesterday yesterday and uh, we have found up uh, security deployment and security arrangements in different states of the federation at the level of the pooling units uh, we are going to have different security agencies um uh who are not going to be armed we want to assure voters because the security agencies have assured us uh, that they are going to secure the environment in such a way uh, that voters will have confidence to go out and vote uh, that our election personnel will be protected and our materials will be safe uh, in the various locations. That was Festus Okoye, the Commissioner for Information and Voter Education of the Independent National Electoral Commission, INEC, speaking with reporter Mike Mbonye by phone. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. In a letter to the speakers of both chambers of the U.S. Congress, the White House stressed the need for extending national emergency measures on Libya, pointing out that the situation still poses an extraordinary threat to Washington's national security and foreign policy. Some experts argue that it's time to re-envision what the U.N. should do in Libya and create a modified mandate backed by a peacekeeping force of international troops or NATO. Stephen, Stephen Williams, the UN Secretary General's former special envoy to Libya, discussed the mission with VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shanawi and how the Russian invasion of Ukraine obstructed the UN Security Council's ability in Libya. On the issue of the peacekeeping forces, of course, that was raised uh, even going back to just in the days after uh, the overthrow of Mr. Gaddafi. Libyans at that time and uh, the Libyan parties some nine years later when we signed the ceasefire agreement in Geneva were very clear. No UN peacekeepers on the ground in Libya. No blue helmets on the ground. This is There is a resistance to uh, the presence of um, foreign forces on the ground, which is why in the 2020 ceasefire agreement they made it very clear that they would like these forces and these mercenaries to depart as soon as possible. The UN established on smell to stabilize Libya, initiate political dialogue to foster reconciliation and lay the ground for elections and new constitution, protect human rights, help Libya's economy recover 
and coordinate international support. Out of your intensive experience in Libya, can you pinpoint what prevented the mission from achieving all these goals? Well, of course, that's a very um, large menu of <laughs> in terms of the mandate. Of course, the mandate comes from the Security Council. And, you know, what I can say is this, is that uh, UN missions, and particularly UN political missions, reflect the international community. And as much as there has been division inside Libya, we have seen division internationally and regionally. And that can only complicate uh, the ability of the UN mission to, you know, faithfully implement uh, the, the mandate. I am very proud of the work that the United Nations has done in Libya. The UN political mission and the, uh, the humanitarian agencies. We brought the UN back to Libya in 20, early 2019. We reestablished the mission in Tripoli and in Benghazi after an absence of five years due to the conflict, the, the continuing conflict. There are many, many heroes in that UN mission and in the agencies who every day work quietly to in service of the Libyan people. According to the UN, international actors have blatantly violated the UN arms embargoes without repercussion and regional countries, especially Turkey, Egypt and the United Arab Emirates have been the most obvious violators of UN arms embargoes. You alluded in your remarks that there is a crucial need to get Egypt and Turkey to sit together to facilitate a political solution in Libya. Who will do that and to put the countries to talk? So you have this international architecture that is in place now. It's the Berlin process that was initiated formally in January of 2020. So we've had this process for three years under which these countries come together. Uh, specifically, Egypt and Turkey were among the founding members of the Berlin process in that small initial group of 10 countries. There are obviously complications now with what we call the big Berlin because of you know the disruption caused by Russia's brutal an unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And that has impeded, I think, the ability of big Berlin to meet. But there are subgroupings within Berlin. And one of those subgroupings, it was a group of seven countries, including Egypt and Turkey, which began meeting in March of 2022 in the presence of the UN, and they have continued to meet. And I think that is a worthy forum, uh, but also through the international working groups that are associated with the Berlin process. But I do believe that it is very important in order to support UN mediation efforts that you have a minimum degree of consensus amongst the regional countries who have uh, very severe differences over the Libyan file. So a forum which can bring them together, like the group of seven, like the wider Berlin format. That was Stephanie Williams, the UN Secretary General's former special envoy to Libya, speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shenawi. Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady of the United States, arrived a short time ago in Windhoek, Namibia, the first stop on a five-day Africa tour. At the State House, she met briefly with President Haig Gingob, who told reporters he felt the visit was a big honor. Biden also visited Heroes Acre, the monument to the fallen in Namibia's independent struggle with Namibian First Lady Monique Gingob. Biden said she came to Namibia because it is a young democracy and the U.S. government wants to support democracies around the world. 
She also said she met Gingob in December and they quickly built a friendship. Gingob, in turn, said Namibia's democracy, while young, is vibrant and the country's large youth population drives that democracy. For more on Biden's visit, we have political analyst Pearl Matibi on the line. Pearl, can you tell us about the purpose of this visit? So what we know is that um, this visit that Dr. Jill Biden, who is uh, uh, the First Lady of the United States, this visit is tied into the United States Sub-Saharan Africa strategy. And so what the Biden administration has been saying and wanting to emphasize is that this is not Dr. Biden's first visit. She has been to Africa before at least seven times, but this is her first time as First Lady. And the significance of her visit is that it comes on the heels of Secretary Yellen, who had just been to Africa, as well as the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Now, you'll recall that last August, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, also went to um, Africa and was, in fact, in Southern Africa, uh, in South Africa, where he launched this specific strategy. So are you saying the First Lady's visit uh, is tied to that as part of a push by the U.S. Uh, to strengthen ties on the continent? Absolutely. So we were talking to senior uh, Biden-Harris administration officials yesterday morning who were briefing us about this visit and a number of things that they wanted to stress. One of those things is that to say that this was part of a promise that they had made with African leaders in December 2022 at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. Uh, President Biden uh, had made that pledge that there were going to be high-ranking members of his administration that will be making visits to Africa. So we already saw Secretary um, Yellen, Treasury Secretary. We've seen Linda Thomas-Greenfield. We are still going to see the Secretary of Defense. Um, Now we're seeing the First Lady. And, of course, President Biden himself is planning to come to Africa. So these are visits that are preceding the president's own visit later this year. Uh, What makes uh, Jill Biden's uh, visit a little different, I think, in a statement she put out on social media, she said her trip will focus on education, health and empowering youth and women. Yes, those are things which uh, the the Biden administration did tell us about yesterday. Uh, And yes, you're quite right. She did tweet about that this morning. Uh, There are some outstanding questions, though, that even though these topics might be things that interest her, you know the people in southern Africa. Namibia is key because uh, Namibia is right now the chair of the SADC Peace and Security uh, Committee. Mm -hmm. So the role that Namibia plays is one that the White House wanted to highlight. Uh, Other issues that are important to Southern Africans, uh, to South Africa, is the lack of electricity. To Zimbabwe, again, also the lack of electricity and the upcoming 2023 elections. And that was one topic that did come up uh, in the briefing by senior administration officials yesterday. However, what we don't know is how is she going to marry these topics of health, of women, of education, that she's interested in or that the United States is interested in, with what local populations and societies and communities in Southern Africa and in Kenya are also interested in. How are they going to marry those? Uh, One other aspect as well is that Namibia and Kenya were selected for two reasons. Uh, Kenya, because she's going to go there and talk about uh, focus as well on food security, but in Namibia. She is going to also be focusing on democracy and participation. One thing that is key about Namibia is you know that the whole world 
celebrates and talks and cites about press freedom. Why? Because the the, the agreement that the world uh, uses as a basis for press freedom started in Africa. The Vinduk Declaration was signed in Vinduk in Namibia. What we don't know is will she touch on any issues regarding press freedom, given the importance of Namibia in the region. Namibia is also important because because of its role in SADC, we have this peace and security issue in northern Mozambique. That was one aspect that the Biden-Harris administration officials highlighted yesterday. But right now, we just I don't know if it's going to be then limited to women, youth, and education alone without addressing the lack of electricity, the lack of health care, the lack of, uh, you know, diminishing uh, democratic space and participation in elections like the 2023 Zimbabwean election. Pearl Matibi, political analyst, thank you for your input. Thank you. And that wraps up this edition of Africa News Tonight. I'm Yehiya Suhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Nelson Lopes, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.